This is the day that the Lord has made. We shall rejoice and be glad in it. Hi, my name is Dr. Lou Diaz, pastor of Butte Bible Fellowship located at 2255 Pillsbury Road in Chico. And I'm providing inspirational teaching for you from God's Word each week. Listen to my weekly radio program, Encouraging Words with Dr. Lou Diaz, at 10 a.m. on Saturday or 10 a.m. on Sunday. If you would like to hear my current message series, you may call Butte Bible Fellowship at 530-892-0521. Today's message is entitled, Jesus Did God's Will So That We May Do It Also. We come to Hebrews 10 and we see in the beginning and the end of the chapter the word will, referring to God's will. So in Hebrews 10.5, we see, Then I, Jesus, said, Here I am, it is written about me in the scroll, I have come to do your will, my God. Jesus was saying, yes, I'll go to earth, I'll have a human body, I will share the sufferings and the temptations and the trials of human beings, I will teach them about you, I will reveal you to them, and yes, I will suffer death on a cross and shed my blood for the forgiveness of their sin. Jesus said, I have come to do your will, my God. At the end of Hebrews, Hebrews chapter 10, verse 36, speaking about us who follow Jesus Christ, it says you need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. That is that you and I are to persevere in holding on to Jesus Christ in believing his work is finished and complete and total in providing for our forgiveness. Nothing could be added to it. Nothing can be taken away from it. And by hanging on to and confessing Jesus Christ as Lord, even when persecuted, we will not shrink back, but we will stand up, stand up for Jesus. And by standing up for Jesus, by persevering and enduring, even suffering, and persecution, we will receive heaven and all the glories of our inheritance for eternity. So the emphasis is Jesus obeyed God's will so that we could be forgiven, receive a new heart so that we want to do God's will. And by doing God's will and hanging on to Jesus, we will finish well and receive all that God has in store for us. Now, the whole chapter breaks down to these five things. First of all, that past sacrifices have failed. The Old Testament sacrifices were inadequate. They only covered sin. They didn't cleanse sin. They didn't take away sin. Secondly, Christ's cross won. All that Jesus did on the cross for us in shedding his blood has provided everything that we need. Forgiveness of our guilt, forgiveness of our guilt feelings, and forgiveness of our shame. All three are dealt with by Christ's death on the cross. And the new covenant, the new agreement of having a heart of flesh that's responsive to God is here. And we are to avoid losing by not shrinking back, not going back to the old ways as the Jewish believers were tempted to go back to the sacrificial system. If they did that, they would be denying the grace of God 
and the efficacy of Christ's sacrifice on the cross. And finally, this chapter talks about how it's by faith that we fulfill God's will. How did the Old Testament saints do it? Who were faithful to God? They hung on to God by faith. And it's no different for you and for me. Let's look at this. First of all, past sacrifices failed. Hebrews 10, 1-4. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly, year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. So the law prescribed sacrifices. These sacrifices only covered sin, they didn't cleanse sin, therefore they could never make a person completely righteous in the eyes of God. In that regard, the past sacrifices failed. Also, we see in verse 2 and 3, otherwise would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins. It is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The point here is that the past sacrifices failed to do what? They failed to make us completely righteous in the eyes of God. They failed to cleanse us once for all time. They failed to take away our guilt. In all these ways, the sacrifices offered in the Old Testament were inadequate and fell short. So that even on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, when the high priest would go into the Holy of Holies, the people standing by would remember their guilt. They would feel their guilt all over again, wondering if God really loved them, wondering if God had really forgiven them. Because it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. All these Old Testament sacrifices were pointing to the New Testament, to Jesus Christ and his once-for-all and once-for-all-time sacrifice for us, And those in the Old Testament dispensation who trusted in God, who believed that these sacrifices were working on their behalf, were looking forward to the finished work of Christ on the cross. So these past sacrifices failed, but good news, Christ's cross wins. Hebrews 10, 5-14. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said... Now, this is very interesting because the writer of Hebrews is putting into Jesus' mouth the words that the psalmist said in Psalm 40, verses 6 to 8. So to give Jesus a speech to say on Christmas Eve before coming into the world, he says, Jesus would say these words, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me, With burnt offerings and sin offerings, you were not pleased. Then I said, here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. So whereas the past sacrifices failed, that they were not desired by God, and he was not pleased with them because people were putting their faith in the sacrificial system, not in God and his grace and forgiveness. And when they were doing it mechanically, 
when they were doing it because they had to. When they were doing it for appearances, God was very displeased, displeased because obedience is better than sacrifice. They would sacrifice and then continue in their disobedience and wayward ways. So Jesus knew the only way for people to be saved and to be um, able to obey is for them to have a new heart, which is the new covenant. And the only way for them to get a new heart is for them to be forgiven by his shed blood and to receive his righteousness so that they're seen as perfectly righteous before the eyes of God. So based on that, Jesus said, I will fulfill that mission. So we have many hymns that talk about Jesus leaving heaven to come to earth. But one that I think of is, out of the ivory palaces, Jesus left the beauty and the comfort of perfection, of being worshipped, of uh, um, being able to do whatever he wanted at any time to become a human being. A theologian put it succinctly, eternity in a span. Eternity, the eternal God, took on a body to live a span of a lifetime on earth cut short by death on the cross. Eternity in a span. Jesus became a human being to do God's will. So when he was on earth, it says in the gospel, he set his jaw to Jerusalem. What does that mean? That he was on a mission, and the mission was to go to the cross, to die on the cross, to pay for your sins and mine so we could be fully forgiven, so that we can receive his righteousness and be put right with God and have the Holy Spirit in us, the heart of flesh, so that we want to do God's will and we want to live for him. So Christ crossed one, it goes on to say in verse 8, first he said, and this is the writer of Hebrews expounding on the words of Psalm 40, verses 68. First he said, sacrifices and offerings, burnt offerings and sin offerings, you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, though they were offered in accordance with the law. Then he said, here I am, I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, when Jesus said these words, he was in essence saying, I know that the past sacrificial system has failed. I have come to succeed in providing a sacrifice that will pay for sins for all time, and we will put aside the old covenant and establish the new covenant. We will make the old covenant obsolete where there's no need for further sacrifices to be made because my sacrifice will be for all time for all who trust in me. So Christ's cross won because the writer of Hebrews in commenting on Psalm 40 says, And by that will, by saying, I will come and do your will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. You see that as the punchline, as as where the writer of Hebrews is trying to get to? Right at that point, you just burst into praise and hallelujahs because you say, thank you, Lord, that whereas the past sacrifices failed, your cross has won. By you, 
willing to go to Jerusalem, go to the cross to pay for my sins. By your death, I have been made holy, complete, perfect in the eyes of God through your sacrifice, you giving your body and your blood on my behalf in my place once for all. There's no more need for sacrifice. Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. Aren't you glad? Now, let's just stop here for a second and let me ask you a very hard question. Do you believe this? Well, let's test that. How many times do you wallow in guilt? Most of the time? All of the time? Some of the time? A fraction of the time? You see, if you really understood what the Bible says, you're not guilty. Before a holy God, you're 100% acceptable. You belong. He never shakes his head disapprovingly at you and goes, tisk, tisk, I'm so sad. No, he loves you. He accepts you. He sees Jesus when he sees you. The righteousness of Jesus is yours. You have been made completely holy in the eyes of God. Is there any room for guilt if you've been made holy? Well, yes, if you've sinned, you should feel guilt because it's a corrective saying that's not who you really are. But should you feel guilt in the sense of you're always feeling guilt. I'm just, I'm just a bad person. I do bad things. And you move from guilt to shame. And I am bad. No! The death of, cross on the, uh, on the, the death of Christ on the cross has made you holy. So guilt, guilty feelings, and shame have been removed. Now let me try to bring this home by an illustration. And, um, and this illustration is um, one of a man who appears before the IRS for cheating on his income tax. I mean, just downright fraud. Okay, uh, he says to the Internal Revenue agent, I guess you got me. Yes, Mr. Anderson, I'm afraid it's all pretty clear. Well, you can't blame me for trying. I suppose everybody gives themselves the benefit of the doubt. I think you've gone beyond that. This is a pretty clear case of fraud, and we're thinking of prosecuting you. Now, wait a minute. I'll pay the tax you say I owe, and the penalty too, but you can't prove I didn't just make an honest mistake. I think we can prove fraud, Mr. Anderson, and it's very possible that we'll try. Please, I won't try to talk you out of it, but, well, will my children have to know? Now, right there, in that brief conversation, the three aspects are revealed. Guilt. He committed fraud and was guilty no matter how he felt about it. And when the Bible talks about guilt, it talks about it as an objective fact. If you sin against God, you're guilty. The American culture... We talk about guilt in terms of feelings. If I feel guilty, then I'm guilty. Well, this guy denies his guilt, and he explains it away. Well, everybody does it. It's an honest mistake. And then, shame. Will my kids find out about it? Those are the three aspects. Guilt, guilty feelings, 
and shame. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross, he paid for your sin so that your objective guilt is forgiven. He's paid for your, he's given you his righteousness so you are holy in God's sight. No need for guilty feelings. It says in 1 John 4, the person who thinks they're going to be punished does not know how much God really loves them because fear has to do with punishment and perfect love casts out fear. What does that mean? That means because Jesus Christ died on the cross, therefore there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means you are standing before God in complete holiness and complete righteousness. You are positionally set right with God 100%. No need for guilty feelings. And there's no need for shame. This is so important because later on it's going to say that you have been washed by the blood of Christ from a guilty conscience. Talk about the thorough work and provision of God. You have The work of Christ has not only provided you to be free from objective guilt and guilt feelings, guilty feelings and shame, but it also has sprinkled clean your conscience. Now, why is that important? Our conscience is what looks deep inside and remembers all the bad things we've done in the past. And when we remember the bad things in the past, we project to the future and think we're not going to do much better than that. We're probably going to repeat the past. But no, the blood of Christ makes it possible for your conscience to be cleansed so that you now are turning over a new leaf. The old is gone, the new has come. You are a saint by identity not a sinner by identity. It's radical because all the, the computer data of your past memories of all your evils have been deleted. You can now live for God looking to the Lord and emulating the Lord in his obedience, in his holiness, without thinking I'm doomed to repeat my past. Isn't that powerful? Praise God. That Christ's cross has won. Now, to talk about this, he's going to repeat something he said before. The contrast between the priest and his offering. Notice that the priest is always standing, but notice that Jesus sat down at the right hand of God the Father. To sit down means work finished. To stand up means work is never done. So day after day, every priest stands because his work is never done, and performs his religious duties again and again. He offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, speaking of Jesus Christ, had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool. Praise God. When Jesus died on the cross, he said, paid in full, it is finished. And then when he went up to heaven and sat down at the right hand of the Father, that's Proof positive that his sacrifice was completely acceptable to God the Father and that his work of redemption was complete. Therefore, he could sit down at the right hand of the Father. And then it says in verse 14, another punchline. For by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. This is one of my favorite verses in the Bible because it tells me 
that before God, I have positional righteousness. I've been set right in the eyes of God. But it also says that I'm growing in practical righteousness. Do you hear that? I have positional righteousness, but I'm growing in practical righteousness. I've been made perfect forever by the finished work of Jesus on the cross, but I'm being made holy as I'm growing every day in Christ-likeness. I'm learning to confess my sin, to repent and turn from my sin, to ask the Holy Spirit to fill me in that area of my life, and to keep my eyes focused on Jesus, to become more like Him in being obedient to doing God's will. But all of that is made possible because Jesus died on the cross for me, shed His blood for me. Isn't this wonderful? Right here, we are praising You, Lord, for your one sacrifice, once for all sacrifice, once for all time sacrifice, that you have made us perfect forever. We're already holy in your sight. And yet you're making us holy. Practically speaking, we're growing into our holiness throughout our lives, and we won't be perfect until we see Jesus. When we see Jesus, then we shall be like him. 1 John chapter 3. The next point is the new covenant is here. Because Christ died, because he is the perfect sacrifice once for all time, the new covenant that was prophesied in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 is fulfilled. The Holy Spirit also testifies to us about this. First he says, this is the new covenant I will make with them after that time, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts and I will write them on their minds. Then he adds, their sins and lawless acts, I will remember no more. Let's just stop there for a moment. You remember the three components of the new covenant. They are a transformed heart, a special relationship with God, and a cleansing from all sin. That's the new covenant right there. God promised, I'm going to take out your stony heart and put a heart that's responsive to me, the Holy Spirit inside my life. I'm going to have a special relationship. You will be my people and I will be your God. And I will forget and not remember your sins any longer. Praise God that's been made possible by Jesus Christ. So the new covenant is here and it goes on to say, and where these have been, and where these have been forgiven, sacrifice for sin is no longer necessary. Because of the new covenant, you are fully forgiven by the blood of Christ. And no further sacrifice is needed to atone for your sins. Now, why is this important? Because some people, even Christians, don't fully get it and don't fully believe it. What do we do when we do something stupid and wrong and sinful? We punish ourselves. We hit ourselves with the stupid stick. Stupid, stupid, stupid. Guess what? Christ died on the cross so our, all of our sins could be forgiven. No further sacrifice is necessary because his sacrifice is all sufficient. Now, of course, the case the writer of Hebrews is making to the Jewish believers is don't you dare go back to Judaism. Don't you dare go back to the sacrificial system because if you do that, you're denying the grace of God and that Jesus had to die on the cross for your sins. You're trying to find a different way to be saved rather than the only way that God has made possible for you to be saved. 
Your sins are so serious, it took the Son of God living a perfect life, dying on the cross for you, for your sins to be forgiven. You think by going back to the old ways of sacrificing bulls and goats, you're going to add to the sacrifice of Jesus? Well, you better think again, because you've been saved by grace alone, by the finished work of Christ alone, to the glory of God alone, according to the Word alone. So how can we win? How can we, based on what Jesus did for us, continue in the faith and receive all that God has for us? There are, first of all, two senses and four lettuces. Let's look at them. Verse 19, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most high place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God. So he's summarizing what he's taught us so far, that the new way is the body of Christ given for us. That's what tore the temple curtain from top to bottom and made it possible for us to have a personal relationship with the holy God in the holy of holies is Christ giving his body for us. And since we have a great high priest, one who's compassionate and sympathetic and understands our struggles because he's lived through them, on the basis of that, here's the four lettuces. You know what uh, food honeymooners like, right? Lettuce alone. So we're going to look at four lettuces. The first in verse 22, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. So the first thing to finish well and to win in doing God's will is to draw near to God, knowing that you're fully forgiven. There's nothing separating you from God. He loves you. He wants you to come into his presence. He's even cleared your conscience so that you could have a bright and new future. Secondly, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. So don't let go of the hope you have in Christ. Christ in us is the hope of glory. And the next let us is, and let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds. So don't think just about yourself on how you could do God's will. Encourage other people to do God's will. And then the fourth let us is not in the English version, but in the Greek. And let us be not giving up meeting together as is the habit of some. And I would think there's the fifth lettuce, which is, but encouraging one another. So when we meet, we need to encourage one another in the Lord and do so all the more as the day is approaching of Christ's return. So how to avoid losing? Uh, if we deliberately keep on sinning after we have received the knowledge of the truth, no sacrifices for our sins is left, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a raging fire that will consume the enemies of God. Now, keep in mind that this book is written to Jewish believers. And what the writer is saying, this is uh, one of five warnings in the book. He's saying, don't you dare go back to the sacrificial system. Don't you dare go back to Judaism, having seen that Jesus is the way to God the Father, and that forgiveness, full forgiveness, is found in him. Because you'll deny and nullify what Jesus did. You'll say, oh, Jesus didn't have to die for my sins. I'll take care of it myself. Don't you do that because you'll be 
wide open to anyone who rejected the law of Moses died without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much more severely do you think someone deserves to be punished who has trampled the Son of God underfoot, who has treated as an unholy thing the blood of the covenant that sanctified them, and who has insulted the Spirit of grace? That's very serious. So the writer of Hebrews is saying, don't you dare do that. And then he goes on with confidence because he's assuming with that strong warning that they listen and they're not going to do such a thing. And he finishes the chapter with this. It's faith that fulfills God's will. Chapter 10, 32 to 35. Remember those earlier days after you had received the light when you endured, that is, you hung on by faith in a great conflict full of suffering? Sometimes you were publicly exposed to insult and persecution. At other times, you stood side by side with those who were so treated. You need to persevere so that when you have done the will of God, you will receive what he has promised. For in just a little while, he who is coming will come and he will not delay. We're looking forward to the return of Christ. And Jesus is saying, hang on by faith in the meantime. Even if you're persecuted, uh, keep on saying Jesus is Lord endure. And he's quoting Habakkuk 2.4, and my righteous one will live by faith. I take no pleasure in the one who shrinks back, but we do not belong to those who shrink back and are destroyed, but to those who have faith and are saved. You see the assumption the writer of Hebrews has about his readers? He is assuming that they are going to finish well, that they are going to fulfill God's will by faith, because he says you don't belong to those who shrink back. Do you need encouragement? I want to share my spiritual gift of encouragement with you. If you would like to hear my current message series, you may call Butte Bible Fellowship at 530-892-0521. Call Butte Bible Fellowship at 530-892-0521 to find out how you can connect with our weekly worship services and faith-building messages from God's Word.